0: Welcome back to the Behind the Wealth Show. Here with Elias Randall. It's Roger Abel. How are you today, Elias?
1: I'm I'm good. Um, other than the, the shocking headline, I read this morning that Russia is invading Ukraine, so that sounded kind of scary, but um, it's a long way from here. So, you know, I'm good. I'm happy to be back on the show, and hopefully all the listeners are, uh, you know, ready for another
0: episode. So, I, I typically don't watch... Like news channels for the most part, because most of the time it's just the same thing over and over. It's pretty negative. But last night when uh, the headlines came through that uh, Russia had invaded Ukraine, I went and started watching the news channels. And I went to um, CNN and my wife looked over. She goes, you haven't watched CNN since COVID. Now they got your attention. Again. Yeah. She's like, why, why are you watching Don Lemon? Yeah. A crisis <laughs> and, happens and, and the TV comes back. On. She goes, what's up with Don Lemon's new look? Because you know we haven't watched it since oh. you know COVID back in 2020 had these big glasses on, but of course I got sucked into it for like two and a half hours last night, and they just keep repeating themselves, and all that's going through my mind. These reporters, like they're really putting themselves out there. I mean, one guy had like a bomb hat on and a vest, and it just seemed like excess risk. But one of the things that wanted me, or I wanted to talk about today. Is the effects of a war on the stock market, because I think it's normal human reaction to just say, hey, the market's going to go down. Um, And I actually had a caller to just curious as to what I thought the outcome would be. And, you know, people that have listened to the show for a while. Know that we have a really long term view. We're not trying to predict markets, but historical context is actually really good for these situations. So what I did was I had Molly go um, before the show, go pull up what's happened in previous um, market cycles when we've actually had a war. And if we go back, basically starting um, with Pearl Harbor, I don't know how many that's been. There's been a lot. Uh, We have a chart. I don't know who was put out. It was actually put out by LPL. There you go. It was put out by LPL, which is our broker dealer. And it shows the event date when the war actually started, what the one day return it was, the total drawdown for the S&P 500, how long it took for the stock market to bottom and days to recovery. And if you go and look in the recovery column, and I'll, I'll just read a couple, like for example, the Iraq Iraqis invaded Kuwait, you know, 71 days to the bottom, 189 days to recovery. But I think what was more interesting is during periods of war, so from the start of World War II in 1939 until it ended in 1944, and I don't want anybody listening to this or watching this to think that this is like some prediction of this long, drawn-out war. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But if it were— No one does. No no one knows. No one knows what's going to happen. But from 1939 to 1945, the Dow Jones— Industrials actually up 50% or average better than 7% a year. And as I dug into this further, um, one of the things you can start to look at and recognize is that during World War II, large cap stocks averaged 16%. During the Korean War, they averaged 18.7. During the Vietnam War, they averaged 6.4. During the Gulf War, they averaged 11.7. And what you'll see in a lot of this data what you start to realize is most of the negative selling pressure is actually happening during the buildup to the invasion. And then once it actually happens, the market has tended to actually turn fairly or relatively strong during that period of time. And okay, I
1: guess that to me, this was a question I brought up just thinking about everything this morning. So I wanted to get your take on the show which I'm okay this probably added a little bit of selling pressure but I mean market's been you know going down for like since the beginning of January there's been a lot of selling so like I just wonder like really how much this ad, adds to the situation
0: so market as of yesterday was down 12.22%. That was the S&P 500 was down 12.2. The Nasdaq or the Nasdaq which is another popular um index was down 17 ish percent we've known or had the idea that Russia was building up a presence on the border for the better part of the last week. I mean, I think a week ago they came out and said, Hey, an invasions imminent and the market probably started to price some of that in. And what's interesting today, you know, we're actually filming this the day after the invasion won't release until, you know, a few days from that or a few next week. But, um, What's interesting is the Nasdaq was actually positive midday today. So I watched the futures all night. The Nasdaq was down 3.5% overnight, and it actually turned positive earlier today. The Dow was down 25 I don't know where it's at. It's off its lows. Um, and it, I don't know where it's going to finish, but it's just interesting. You'd think there would be a much larger reaction that day that it happened, but a lot of it may have already been priced in into the overall general market with the expectation that this was going to happen. If you think about the market in general, it's a forward looking, you know, anomaly, like it's pricing things into the future. It doesn't wait for things to happen just like inflation. Okay. We, or I shouldn't say inflation, inflation's here, but interest rates, we haven't raised interest rates yet, but the expectation is that we will five to eight times this year. Well, the market already has that priced in. They don't actually wait until interest rates rise to change, right? Because some level, the stock market is speculative. You're speculating on what can happen. Now, the good news is over a long period of time, the market has gone up. The only time, like in the interest rate world, you'd get something that wasn't expected. Well, let's say they raise interest rates one full percent and they're expecting a half a percent. That would have a knee-jerk reaction to the market. Or if the market's expecting a half a percent interest rate and they say, hey, we're not going to raise it all. Well, there's going to be a reaction in the market. Because the expectation was it was going to happen. But most things in the market are priced in well before the event happens. If it's somewhat known or expected. Obviously, there's black swan events like COVID. Nobody knew what was going to happen with COVID. That was pretty drastic reaction very, very quickly. Um, So I think the thing for people to take away from this is the reason we want people to have a financial plan done is that we're dialing in the most optimal portfolio and asset allocation so that when times of chaos arrive you don't feel like you're guessing you have a level of confidence as to why you have the portfolio that you have and during times like this is when really simple actions like rebalancing portfolios start to make a difference people who rebalance during COVID, think about it the bonds actually went up in value. The stocks went down. So when they rebalanced, they would have sold bonds and bought stocks. If they did it during that period of time, they might've bought an index at the, you know, the Dow Jones at 20,000 or 21 or 18, who knows what it was. But if they rebalanced as the stock market went down, they did well. It's similar to today. If you were to rebalance to yesterday, you're buying the market 12% lower. You're not trying to time the market. You're just going back to your original asset allocation that you'd set out to achieve over a long period of time.
1: Yeah. And is it fair to say that, you know, maybe right now it's, is right, maybe it's time to just do nothing too. Isn't that another decent alternative? Like maybe if you have a good plan and you feel good about your investments and the things you've done, maybe now is just a good time to just do nothing. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, it's fair. But I would go back and look because if the market was down, it's let's say you had some tech in your equity portfolio, your portfolio might be down 10%. It still might make sense to rebalance. If you're in a 50-50 portfolio and the market's down 10%, you've now got 55% bonds and 45% stocks. So rebalancing to bring you back into parity, there'd be no, nothing wrong with that. If that was the case, I don't know. Each portfolio is different but I'm just using simple math. If one has done zero and one went down 10%, arguably we're out of balance. And that's really all rebalancing is. It's just bringing you back to the original asset allocation. And here's why it may make sense. It makes sense to review your financial plan. And this drives me crazy because someone will come in and be like, Hey, I have a financial plan. Great. When'd you do it? Seven years ago. Really? Is it accurate? If you went to your financial and you're supposed to have 50% stocks and 50% bonds and your probability of success was 80%. And if you had 40% stock and 60% bonds, your probability was 65%. You should rebalance immediately to get you back to 50-50. Otherwise, you're carrying a portfolio that actually may have a less optimal outcome for you long term. And people fall into that all the time. You see it all the time with people. Oh, yeah, I bought a, you know, I have a balanced portfolio, 60-40. And they have 72% stocks and 28% bonds because the market went up and they never rebalanced.
1: Right. Yeah, there hasn't been any rebalancing in their account for a long time. And it happens
0: a lot if, you know, if you're working with a fiduciary, you're doing some level of a managed account where somebody is actively making trades and monitoring the account. That's significantly less likely to happen. But where it happens is you went and bought some investment from somebody, and you originally, 10 years ago, bought 70% stocks and 30% bonds, and it's in a brokerage account, and you've never done anything with it, pretty sure it's not 70-30 anymore. No. And it's really, it's more difficult to rebalance a portfolio like that than it is a managed account or a 401k that you have at work. Most 401ks have a button. You just go hit the button and rebalance to your original asset allocation.
1: Yep. So what are, okay, so what are the major, I guess for listeners, the major takeaways of just geopolitical events in general and, and this one probably not a lot of times they're not as bad as maybe what you think they're going to be. I'm not talking about the event, but the impact on markets. On
0: markets, yeah. Generally, yeah. it's not as bad. Um,
1: and if I, the average, like, from the from the chart we looked at and the report LPL put out, the average of all those events is a 5% drawdown. And then, like, 22 days to the bottom. And I think it's, uh, I just, I'll look quick, but the average, of oh, 47 days to recovery. So... And obviously, averages are, you know, that's not how every situation works. But hopefully that gives people some, if they are worried, a little bit of relief that this could really be a short, you know, it could be a short-term thing as far as their investment planning is concerned.
0: Yeah, and we, we clearly don't know what the outcome will be. But if we look at history, that's where it tends to lead us. The one thing that might be a little different is we're in a, kind of a interesting position economically right now where we have really high inflation, we have near zero percent interest rates, we need to raise them, or had priced in to raise them, and now we have a geopolitical event that maybe hampers that. So I, th- I think this is gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, there's been very few periods of time where we've had a prolonged, you know, I mean, I think I think there's only one period of time, Elias, where we've had a negative 10-year Rolling rate or a negative return in the stock market over ten years, I think once. Yeah, and it was. Bare. I think,
1: it's not. I don't remember the numbers offhand. I but think it's it was two thousand to ten. Yeah. It was like minus. Yeah, half markets a are basically flat. One. Yeah,
0: I don't want people to confuse your time horizon with your retirement age. If you think you're going to be invested for fifteen years, then it, it really is a non-event. Um, and the question isn't always just "Am I going to be invested?" Is the question is "Is the money going to be, be invested?" So I have older clients, or some older clients. Well, I might not live to see this come back. Are you going to spend this money ever? No. Then it's not for you. For the next generation, they can keep the shares. I had this conversation a few days ago with somebody. I go, Are you ever going to spend this money? No. Okay. Your she was wanted to go all cash, and I don't talk people out of it typically, but she had forty percent stocks, sixty percent bonds. She's conservative. I'm never going to spend this money. I said, Why are you trying to time the market then? Just stick yeah, with the good asset allocation. Right. And, just, and in
1: that in that scenario, if if all your money is going to go to your beneficiaries of your accounts, your kids, your grandkids, whoever it is, I mean depending on who our beneficiaries are, the time horizon on those dollars can be fifty years, eighty yeah, years. Who it, knows? Right. If, if some of the money is going to like a ten year old kid. So right. And a Absolutely. You don't need to time the market for that.
0: I think a a lot of people, I wish people would think differently about time horizon. And we hear it a lot. People come in, well, I'm retiring in three years. Like three years is the end. Well, if you retire at 65, you're probably going to live 20 or 25 years in retirement. And you can't really afford to go into protectionism mode. I mean, look at if you're in protectionism mode right now and you bought CDs two years ago you're getting 1%, inflation was 7, 7.2. You'd lost 6% of your, of your spending power right there.
1: Yeah, and even the market, okay, so market down 12% off the high. People who have been invested and certainly buying equities are far better off than people who have been in cash for the last 10, 15 years.
0: What's significantly better off. So as we move forward and talk about some other things um you know people are comparing market turmoil this year to 2000 and 2008 and i think primarily because some of the very high flying asset classes have really come down in value. So if you look at the NASDAQ 100, which is really tech heavy, there's a lot of tech companies that are down 50, 60, 70, 80%. You can look at Kathy Wood's ARC fund, hit its peak at like $156 a year ago. It traded down to 60. So some of these really high flyers are trading down. So I think people are starting to think that, you know, this is similar to these other periods of time. And it may be. At the end of the day, the market's only down 12%. I went back and did a little research, and we've talked about this before. The average entry-year decline, or the me, it's really the median, or excuse me, the average entry-year decline for the S&P 500 is 13.8%. Which means at some point throughout each year, on average, the market has a 13.8% drop. Well, we're, we're only at 122 right Yeah. So... Is it that big of a deal? No, but people just haven't seen their accounts go down for so many years. And during COVID, it came back so fast, they didn't have time to worry about it. Like it went down, they got the next quarterly statement, it was back. They didn't have time to worry about it. But now we got month, they're gonna get two months and they're gonna have two months of back-to-back negative statements with no like big event to blame it on, right? They're not gonna be able to say, well, it's COVID, it was expected. Mm -hmm. There's no big event. It's not, that abnormal that you'd have a mid year market drawdown.
1: Yeah, and isn't I mean, okay, so the like I know there's a lot of companies that their share price is down like fifty percent or more, but it seems like like the growth like the growth sector, technology sector, like that's where like those are down I guess further than other companies. So doesn't that kind of speak to being being diversified and you know maybe not be, having too much exposure to just one area of the market or one asset class or one sector. It's exactly why we'd be
0: diversified. I I'll never forget it. I had a meeting two years ago when growth just went through the roof. I mean, it was, I think the guy who owned a fund was up like thirty some percent. It, it was up, and he looked at all his other portfolio that didn't have as much growth names in it and it was up like seventeen. The guy was unhappy. I mean, he wasn't really unhappy, but. He's like, why don't we own all of this? And I said, because this one doesn't win every year. And I right. pulled out that Callan chart, which we can post to the website. We'll I have Molly put it out there, btwellshow.com. But Callen releases a chart and shows the returns of different asset classes for each calendar year. And it's in these great um, color blocks. So it's easy to see which one was the highest in 2003 and which one was the highest in 04 and 05, and so on and so forth. Very rarely do you have the same one that's at the top three years in a row or four years in a row or five years in a row. There's certain asset classes that are typically at the top because they're geared for more growth. I mean, you know, bonds typically aren't at the top unless the market's negative, And growth is typically one of the top three or four there because that's what they're supposed to do. And when the market's prosperous, uh, the, or, excuse me, when there's prosperity in the market, those do well. So I, I think it leads exactly to why a well-diversified portfolio makes sense to kind of not worry about all, all these different factors. You could go and find parts of the market that are doing well. So we beat up an international for years because it's done so much worse than U.S. equities. Well, guess what? International's not doing as bad this year. So what if you dumped all your international because you said, hey, look, This thing hasn't done good for 10 years.
1: Yeah. And and you've held it for 10 years. Yeah.
0: And I don't know what international is going to do, but I think it's all part of a very well diversified portfolio. Warren Buffett said it best. You should own a little bit of everything all the time.
1: Speaking of uh, Warren Buffett, um, I don't know if you saw it was in Yahoo news, but I was reading an article and Charlie Munger had a really funny quote. Um, And it's kind of long, but then he ends up summing it up by saying, and he's talking, it goes in, what he's talking about is what we're talking about, being diversified, not market timing. That's kind of what the article is about. And he sums up this quote by saying, but to everyone who finds the current investment climate hard and difficult and somewhat confusing, I would say, welcome to adult life.
0: Welcome he's, to adulting? That's exactly what it but is. But
1: he, and to me, this because over the years, he's had all those really good Dry quote. So it's like he just gets better. I think. Welcome to adult life.
0: Well, you know, <laughs> it's true because when was it ever easy to go pick the winner? It's never been easy because it might have,
1: it, yeah, it might have felt easy the last couple of years, but it's right. You're right. It's well, not just easy.
0: You want to know why it was easy? Because everything went up. Right. Like there oh, was yeah. a lot of
1: liquidity, a lot of investment. Because dollars here's coming here's into what, the market.
0: Here's what investors don't do. The guy who buys the individual stock and it goes up thirty percent and the market did eighteen. He doesn't go look at his risk adjusted rate of return. He just looks at his rate of return. Well, mine made thirty and the market did eighteen. Well, that's great. That was one year. Now you're a genius. What's the volatility of this? And guess what's happening? All the people that thought they were brilliant and they bought AMC. Guess what? The market now over two years has beat them. Yeah. They have no no return. So anybody can win in one year and make, make, make themselves feel like they really know what they're doing. But here's how we know over a long period of time, most people aren't good investors or good at picking stocks. Most active, actively managed fund managers don't beat the index.
1: No, it's right around, it's only like 15% on any given year. That's typically what the numbers are. Yeah, And
0: there are a few that have shown a propensity over time to outperform the index. But what people should be focused on when they hear somebody made 30%, well, what was their risk-adjusted rate of return? What I mean by that is how much risk is inherent in that investment. Because if I have two investments that make 10%, they're not the same. If one has less risk and made 10 and the other one has more risk and made 10, I want the one less risk to make 10. No, well, that, That'd that be the simple way to do it. So people never talk about that, though, because they just want to feel like a genius. Um, yeah. And the other, I do want to bring up one
1: other quote before we move on from Munger, because I think it's good for people to kind of maybe rein in some of your expectations on returns. He did have a quote in there. Um, you know, saying, and, and I'd say people got maybe 10 or 11%. If you did, if you did it very intelligently, he's talking about investing before inflation and maybe nine after inflation, eight or nine, that would be a marvelous return. So, you know, him and Warren Buffett are regarded as two of the best investors of all time. And their long-term expectations for their portfolio from this quote are about eight to 10% annualized is what, that he considers that a marvelous return, so I yeah. think if it's good enough, you know good enough for a billionaire, it should be good enough for most
0: people. Most people have a skewed expectation of what the market is going to earn,
1: and it's probably recency bias, right? because what's for it the done last, the last ten years It yeah, has to be north of been crazy thirteen,
0: fourteen percent a year for ten years. if you owned all a hundred percent of the s and p five hundred, which That is a level of diversity, but most people who have portfolios are more diverse than that, right? They own the S&P, they own some international, they own some bonds. They own a bunch of different asset classes, just not the 500 companies in the S&P 500. Um, So right before uh, this show, we were talking about um, the YouTube, or not YouTube, but I guess it's a Netflix show called The Tinder Swindler. And I was on the elliptical last night. And I, I'd heard people talk about it, but like, you know what, I'm going to watch. So I got like 45 minutes into it. So I'm not going to like tell anybody what it's about or what we're going to talk about. We're, we're teasing it for next week because we're going to put it on the show next week. We're going to talk about the Tinder swindler.
1: So I have to watch that movie is what you're saying.
0: You don't watch any other movies. <laughs> okay. So yeah, on, there's, there's a homework on, assignment. You say it's on Netflix, Netflix. Okay. Please tell me you have a subscription to Netflix.
1: Yes, I okay. have Netflix. I have children, so I have, I have yeah. to have Netflix.
0: You don't even, you know, it's funny, lies about kids. You don't need regular TV. If you have YouTube prime and Netflix, you're covered. Oh yeah. All the shows they like are on there. All on TV. Yep. Um, but what got me thinking about that is uh, I pulled an article and I I read it. it was talking about, are you financially compatible with people? And if you think about the divorce rates in our country, they're through the roof, right? I mean, what, 50 plus percent of the families get divorced. Now, I would guess that one of the major reasons is they don't see eye to eye on finances. And in, in, in Tinder Swindler, there is a gal in there talking about, you know you know, what it takes for her to be attracted to somebody and she goes, well, you know, I want them to be share my common interest, be funny. And, you know, having money's not required, but it doesn't hurt. And they went back and played a clip <laughs> from Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe had a, had a, had a clip in a very famous movie. We'll have Molly posted, it, but it was basically the same thing. Like, you know, Hey, if you're handsome, that's a plus. If you have money, that doesn't hurt things. But anyway, Money is
1: if you have money, can you be less handsome? Is that how that works?
0: We're not gonna go down that <laughs> road, Elias. Let's not even start walking down that train. Um <laughs> get it back on the rails. But but uh it got me thinking, and and we you said this the other day in my office. There's sometimes when we meet with people, we're not just their money counselor, we're like the marriage counselor. Yeah. Because we, we get husband and wife who have or whatever a couple who have completely different ideas and how how they feel about money and we have to be this kind of middle ground mediator for them
1: yeah we get yeah we have to yeah that's a good way to put it have to mediate and so on this topic um you I know remember a while back we had a segment about finances and marriages so a friend of mine who's a listener I was laughing when I was reading about this today because... Um, and he's an avid listener. I think he listens almost all of our shows, so he'll he'll hear this story. Um, he said... He goes, you know, I don't agree with... He was talking to me. I don't agree with your opinion on um, finances in a marriage. So him and his wife, they do separate finances, and I'm pretty sure on that show I said... Because I know at my house, we're joint banking, everything's together. So I, that's just kind of what I believe in. And, and he goes... <laughs> You'll laugh at this. He goes, you know, on that episode, how you talked about every time you buy a piece of a slice of pizza at the gas station, your wife asks you about it. He goes, I don't want that in my life. <laughs> so so well, he said, so I don't see that happening for us anytime soon. But what I let him know is you got I go, the, the point of the show or that segment wasn't what I what I think is right for everyone. But you should do what works for you and your situation. But I thought that was really funny that that was a memorable thing for him.
0: And some of that, Elias, you probably could eliminate it in your life. Could eliminate you, what? Your wife checking up on your pizza purchase.
1: Because. Well, yeah, I could just use you guys, cash. Or, well,
0: you guys. So this is where you, you hit on the head. Everybody has to make this work for themselves. You could still have joint finances, but have your own account. And manage your own account. And for some people, that works better, right? The money comes in and then what what are the bills? And then the rest of the money we just split and send to a different account. And you manage your own checkbook and I manage mine. And I know my house, you know, reconciling the bank records is like you got to be like a magician. Cause there's enough transactions online that you're like, this just makes my head spin. And I thought about doing that. Like, Hey, you manage your own account. I'll manage mine. Cause <laughs> I don't want to have to figure it out. But what I thought would be good is to hit on really five things that we believe um, you might want to look at to see if you're actually financially compatible with, with, with somebody. And the number one thing is define your values, right? People have different or value money differently. Some people are spendthrifts. Some people are maximum savers. Some people don't want anything to do with the money. Some people want to be in a hundred percent control of the money, but you should probably know who you're getting in a relationship with and how they feel about the money. And if you have two two sides of this equation, I we have a friend of ours who's similar to this. You have one who doesn't want to spend a dime. I mean, just like Oh yeah. It's trying to save every penny as cheap as it gets. And the spouse has no regard for money. Just buy whatever, spend it, worry about it later, take out loans, whatever. That's a hard situation to make that money work in that family if you have completely different goals.
1: Yeah, it is because you just have, you know, for the one person, any excess, you have one person who enjoys all the spending and then one person who, Probably anytime there's any money spent, it's like a gut shot for them or something because they're so cheap. But yeah, that's going to be... And I'm not
0: saying cheap's bad. There's nothing wrong with that. Just people need to understand what their overall kind of spending pattern or their relationship with money is. I think Jonas in our office talks about it best. He always talks about what's your relationship with money. And once you understand what your relationship is with money, then you can become a better steward of your money. Just understanding what it is that's important to you about it. Um, Number two is review your saving and spending habits. Kind of goes into number one. If you have one person who's a maximum saver and one person who likes to spend, we actually run into this. Being a maximum saver isn't bad, but it could be if you are foregoing all of your life experiences to save every single penny you have.
1: Yeah, I know me personally, I'm not about that.
0: I'm in the camp that I'm going to save what I need to to hit my goals and then whatever's left we're going to spend. I don't yeah. think I need to save every dime. We all have an uncertain amount of time in this world. We don't know how long we're going to be here. What a, if you you got to YOLO with some of the money? Yeah. <laughs> you're exactly right. <laughs> like I think and you know what? I think opened people's eyes up about that, COVID. I think COVID opened people's eyes. They had friends. I know at least three different people under the age of 45 that passed away of COVID. That's tough. I think it made people sit and realize like, why am I doing working overtime and saving all this money that maybe I've already accomplished my goals or on track to accomplish my goals? I don't need to keep saving more. And one of the things we do with that financial plan is for the people who have this situation where we have one person who wants to save everything. And one person who would like to enjoy life a little bit, we can quantify what they need to do. We've had people who are like, you know, you actually could save less, still accomplish your goals and enjoy life. Now, instead of waiting till you're 65, I want everybody listening to think about this. If you retire at 65 or 67 or 63, everybody think how many good years are you going to have left? What's your quality of life going to be at 80 years old or 77 or 75? I'm not saying it's horrible, but it's not the same as it is when you're 45, 50 and 55 years old.
1: Yeah, right. That's I I agree with that. I'm all for people retires, retire early and spend your money and have fun.
0: Um, Number three is, I think, a really good one, especially if um, you're, you know, not married or you're thinking about getting married. I don't think I'd approach somebody on the second date and talk about this, but (laughs) it's, what's uh, your credit score? Yeah. What's your credit score? That's number three.
1: You can't be here anymore.
0: When you got married, did you have to do any kind of like marriage counseling at the church or, or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, well, I shouldn't say we, my wife is Catholic. So yes, we went through the, the marriage classes. So Catholic church,
0: I'll never forget this. We go to a Methodist church and, um, we had to do this with, um, the, with the, with the group there and literally like you need to look at your spouse or to be spouse and tell them any debts you have all like, and my wife and I, we'd lived together. We knew we pretty much knew what each other had. She had some student loans. I had some, and that was about it. But there was a couple in our class, like a hundred thousand dollars in credit cards and the to be spouse didn't know. But and I think it, finds out in front of a bunch of people. Well, I mean, you're in a, like a private group. It wasn't like you had to. So I like would you be were confessing a, in would, front of everybody. I would be
1: embarrassed.
0: But I, yeah, but I think it's important. People get into relationships and it's very common for somebody to hide. Hey, I have one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of student loans or I have these credit cards I didn't tell you about or my credit scores five forty. So we're not going to be able to buy a house <laughs> It shouldn't be the determining factor of whether you get married, I don't believe. But the other person should be aware so they can know what they're getting involved with and know what they're walking into. Because if you have two people and one person's been ultra, ultra concerned about their credit score and their finances and paying everything on time and the other person's, for lack of better terms, a disaster when it comes to that, they're not going to. Be all that thrilled if all of a sudden we're married and oh, by the way, they go to go buy the house and the bankers like, yeah, your credit score, of 540. It's not going to work.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to end up with an angry
0: spouse, I think. Um, four, take a look at your spouse's parents. I think this can be important because typically this is learned behavior from what your parents taught you i don't think it's a steadfast rule all the time i think there are actually situations that i've run into where you have parents that are very irresponsible with money and their kids have learned from them that i don't want to be irresponsible with money i see that often
1: yeah i mean that's that seems, that's like a lot of things. Either you want to, you know, you want to do it because you thought they did a good job or you're going to do it, do it different because you thought they could have done better. So the
0: two common themes I see with parents, there's, you know, three things that really happen, right? You treat money like your parents did. You see your parents irresponsible with money and you're like, man, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to wake up when I'm 60 years old and not have anything. Or three, your parents were so responsible with money that you're like, no, nah, I don't care. <laughs> but I don't see that as much. I don't see people that had parents that were responsible with money that just decide they're going to be a disaster with money. And it probably goes back to teaching their kids at a young age how to value it, how to value
1: it, how to be responsible, how to adult with your money.
0: I was how to watching live in the adult.
1: Do, how to live in the adult life?
0: Do, do you watch Billions? On Showtime?
1: Yeah, I've, yeah, oh, yeah, I've watched the whole thing.
0: So, you know, Axe isn't back this year. They've got Mike Prince and Mike Prince sitting in his kitchen cooking and he looks at his daughters and goes, well, you guys are billionaires or I guess you will be billionaires. I'm like, can you imagine saying that to your kid? And you think that they don't have to be responsible with money. That's probably a higher level of responsibility. If you think about trying to manage a billion dollars, people think, oh, yeah, I'd have all this money It'd be easy. I guarantee you it's not easy.
1: Yeah, you they would you definitely have to teach your kids, school them up, whatever you want to say in order to inherit a big, big fortune like that.
0: Yeah. And so number five, and this is probably the most important thing you can do with a, a significant other or, you know, when you're kind of seeing if you're financially compatible is just to be completely transparent. I know Dave Ramsey talks about a lot. Don't commit financial infidelity. It's easy to do. And what is financial infidelity? I went and took the credit card out at Shields and I didn't tell my wife and I didn't do that. I'm just saying, it, you know, that's financial. I mean, financial infidelity is when you just don't.
1: Um, yeah. for For me, it'd be I'm trying to hide my gas station food purchases. That would be. My infidelity. You need a separate. If count. I started
0: doing that. <laughs> you better just take the debit count out, The debit card. Take the twenty out. Um, but one thing you can do. We actually have a. Um, a couple's discussion guide on our website. If you want to download that, that's btwellshow.com, and that's our uh, download to our discussion or a couple's discussion guide. It'd be good if you're thinking about getting married or you're in a relationship, and you want to figure out how to better handle money with your spouse, you can go get that download at btwellshow.com. Uh, with that said, I think it's a great show, Elias. Appreciate having you as always. If anybody's looking for help getting a financial plan, looking to meet with an advisor, you can go to btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to help you. Uh, look forward to the next episode. Thanks for listening and watching. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax
1: professional.